Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Jesus said, wait here and stay awake with me. Stay awake with me. Stay awake. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels who were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast, and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the songs of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous deeds have been revealed. And I looked and I saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. Is that true? Do our existential questions matter to God? Will they be answered? 
Grand questions, big questions. Questions like why the cosmic conflict? Why all the suffering? Why didn't it end sooner? How will you bring it to a conclusion in a way that is fair? And then what about the personal questions? Questions asked by family members today about their family members or about you in your own life. I have some names here that I'm going to share with you, read to you. I have restricted the names to those in whose services I have been privileged and honored to participate, funeral or memorial, and restricted it to this calendar year. But I want to share with you the names. Steve Hodgkin, Jolan Sabo, Ann Hoxie, Carlton Lofgren, Nathan Schilt, Benjamin Trim, Lloyd Days, Glenn and Doris Baker, Heather Chikowsky, mother, Presley Chikowsky, daughter, Leonard Bullis, Shashi Tribuan, Roger Heinrich, Georgia Hodgkin, mother of Steve at the beginning of the list, Jake Corrit, son, and now Jim Corrit, father. Just this calendar year, just those in whose service I was honored to participate, there are many more whose lives and names are just as precious. Do you suppose, do you suppose that if when the kingdom of God is finally and fully realized, if there is a line that leads into the throne room of God, a line of people with questions, do you suppose those families will get in line? God, why? God, I'll be in that line. Will you be in that line? We get in that line because we think that our existential questions matter to God and that they will be answered. Our concern here as we look at the book of Revelation is to ask, is that question, pardon me, statement, a valid statement? Do our questions matter, and will they be answered? So we come to a section of Revelation today which is impossible to cover. I'll just say it's impossible. There is far too much there. I will tell you, though, in all honesty, that I've been tempted to say that a number of other weeks as well. 
But this case especially. So what I want to do today is give a brief overview of this section. Remember, in the scroll, the seven seal scroll, we are now in the section of Revelation. The seals have all been broken in a section of Revelation which is revealing to us the contents of the scroll. What is going to happen in the final lead-up to the establishment of the kingdom of God? So what is an overview of this section? Chapters 15 and 16. The seven last plagues are in this section, those bowls that are poured out on the world. A very familiar and scary name is in this section, Armageddon, a battle that will take place right toward the end of human history. That's in this section. We have three unclean spirits like frogs that come out of the mouths of the counterfeit trinity. All of that in, is in this section. What is it saying to us? What is it telling us? Just this morning, walking into church, Paul Gein summarized the seven last plagues and the great tribulation in as succinct as a way as I've read it or heard it. It's very helpful. Purpose of the seven last plagues is to show that there is a group of people who have been following the beast who no matter what props are kicked out from under that on which they depend will not change. They refuse to. They have made their decision and they're not turning back. And then the great tribulation, the same is true on the other side. Regardless of what difficulty, what meltdown, what persecution may come, they have been following the Lamb and they will not change no matter what may come. So as we're getting down toward the end, we are seeing that the lines have become increasingly divergent, increasingly separate, increasingly different, leading up to the Battle of Armageddon. What is the Battle of Armageddon? Is it a battle with tanks and bombs and guns somewhere in the Middle East? No. The Battle of Armageddon is fought right here in our minds. It is a battle for control of the mind and the heart for the loyalty of mind and heart. And the way mind and heart make their decisions is through what we give our ears to and what we give our eyes to. To whom you give your ears, to whom you give your eyes, that is the person for whom you are making decisions. And the picture that is painted is decisions are being made every single day, small ones, incremental ones, but they are happening as the lines diverge more and more widely. I grew up hearing this term, the close of probation. You heard that term? It used to scare the life out of me. It was like at this one moment in time, suddenly God said, that's it, everybody out of the pool. And then depending on where I was, I was either lost or saved. That is not the picture painted here. The picture painted here is that there comes a moment in time when everybody's decision is made, and they're not looking back. That is the close of probation. When people have made their last decision and no one is changing, and during that time, these three unclean spirits like frogs are the counterfeit three angels. Three angels delivering the eternal gospel, these delivering messages to deceive the entire world. And the battle rages, rages on. And then we come to chapters 17 to 19. And the dominant figure here is Babylon. Remember we read it last week. 
Babylon, that great prostitute that sits on the beast, Babylon representing a religious consortium of some kind that now sits on and guides a political power. Somehow religion is trying to accomplish through force, through political force, ends that it desires to accomplish, which is exactly counter to the way God governs his universe. God never uses force in that fashion. But here we discover who Babylon is. We watch Babylon's utter collapse. We watch the three woes pronounced on her, the pushback of the beast that now is angry because it has been deceived. And we hear the threefold hallelujahs of God's people who realize that from which they have been rescued. And then right toward the end of this section comes a white horse rider that will become extremely important in just a few moments as the battle comes to its finale. And then chapter 20. Chapter 20, you'll remember because it speaks of a thousand-year period. But the key term in this period is judgment. Judgment. In fact, I would contend, and I'll show you why in just a moment, that for this entire last section, this word, judgment, is critical. It is a critical theme that winds its way through the entire section. Judgment. Have you considered that judgment is a very positive thing, that it's very good news depending on who you are and on where you find yourself? Just about 62 years ago, in the city of Jerusalem in Israel, a trial took place, a trial that riveted the world. The world attention through little black and white TV screens was turned on Jerusalem because there in the dock and literally behind glass walls, glass walls sat a man named Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann had been one of the key architects of the final solution. He had been personally responsible for transporting millions of Jewish people and certain others to their deaths in the camp. He had been in control. He had been the one who had been deeply feared. But Israeli Mossad agents had infiltrated Argentina, had captured him under the name Ricardo Clement, which was the name he was using at the time, had secreted him back to Israel, and then the news broke. We have Eichmann, and he's going to stand trial. Riveted the world. Deborah Lipstadt, who was special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, which is at the level of an ambassador, just voted in three or four months ago, was formerly a professor at Emory University in Atlanta of Jewish and Holocaust studies. Among many things that she wrote during that time, she wrote a book on the trial of Eichmann. About that time, she was interviewed, and I want to read to you some of the words she spoke at that time, as well as a few comments by the author of the piece. Referring to that moment when Eichmann was on trial and when survivors began to come and to tell their stories, Lipstadt said, there was a march of survivors. I would say approximately 100 survivors who came into the witness box and told the story of what had happened to them. And people watched them and listened to them and heard it in a way they had not heard it before. Then the author of the piece writes, 
Hearing the voices of survivors wasn't the only aspect of the trial that shook the audience. Seeing Eichmann was unnerving as well. This man, who most Israelis considered one of the greatest murderers of all time, appeared so normal. Back to Lipstadt. People were amazed because he looked much more like a bureaucrat, like a pencil pusher with thick black glasses, an ill-fitting suit, a man who laid out all his papers and pens and kept polishing his glasses with a nervous tick. Lipstadt says that people ask themselves, ask themselves, could this man really be responsible for the deaths of millions? This man? He's nothing. Strangely echoing words of the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, who speaking metaphorically speak of that angel who was fallen and the destruction he causes. And at the end, when finally people see him, do you know what they say? They say, is this the man? This, this is what scared us. He's nothing. But Eichmann's testimony, says Lipstadt, illustrated not only that he was guilty, but how enthusiastic he had been about carrying out his orders. Lipstadt once more. There would be times when he would get a communique from the German foreign ministry saying the Italians have contacted them and there's a Jew in Vilna. Or a Jew is someplace else in a ghetto who's married to an Italian Catholic. And Eichmann would quickly rush to get the man deported, sent to Auschwitz, or hidden away so that he couldn't be turned over to the foreign ministry and maybe es escape. He went after every individual Jew he could find. The agent of destruction. Sitting in the dock. Being judged. Do you suppose that was good news for those who had lost dozens of loved ones in the Holocaust? Two final lines from the pen of the author of the piece. The Eichmann trial affected people across the world. It was a reminder that the Holocaust's victims had names and faces and histories. As the story moves to its conclusion, we come to judgment. Our question is, do our existential questions matter to God, to those dear families and countless others like them, as they get in that line, will this experience be a reminder that the cosmic conflict has victims who have names and faces and stories? Do our questions matter to God? And will how God conducts judgment 
allow us to say that God is the tender God of the apocalypse, that God is fair and just in what he does. I know we wonder about this. I want to give you an idea of why I say this part is dominated by judgment. Just listen to this smattering of text taken from this section that includes some word having to do with judgment. Revelation 16, you are just in these judgments, O holy one. True and just are your judgments. Revelation 18, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. For true and just are God's judgments. Revelation 19, the writers call faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. Revelation 20, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Two headings from the NIV, the judgment of Satan, the judgment of the dead. Revelation 20, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Over and again, throughout this section, judgment is front and center. Lest you give in to the temptation to think still that this might be a bad word or that it might be bad news, listen to the words of the eminent New Testament scholar, British New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. Wright writes this. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy in the trees of the field, to clap their hands. In a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world of rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. We say God is love. And that defines God. It's his very essence, his very being. But God cannot be a God of love if he stands ultimately idly by while people are destroyed. For God to be a God of love, there must be a time when he says, enough, I will bring to trial the one who has created all of this. There will be a judgment. So our question is, how does God conduct that? And when God conducts his affairs, does he conduct his affairs in a way that allows us to say God is just and fair, and our questions matter. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, John is writing, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I want you to notice some words. First of all, notice the word right near the beginning of the verse. 
John is writing, and he says, I saw thrones. This is clearly an echo from what we saw in the second week back in Revelation 5, when again he saw thrones. Please notice that this is a plural. I saw thrones. Why does that matter? It matters because what John is portraying is a God who says, when it comes to judgment, I'm not doing it by myself. I am including many others, including human beings human beings who have suffered profoundly because they have followed the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. And God says, they will be involved in this. This is not something that I alone am doing. I saw thrones. But notice the second word, a key word, authority. He says, and authority was given to them. Did you notice what the verse says? Authority was given to them to judge. In other words, this is not something that is an appearance. God hiding behind a bunch of people. These people, these beings are given authority to judge. SDA Bible Commentary commenting on this passage on the Greek word judgment writes this. The Greek is krima, which means sentence, verdict, or a decision rendered. Here, krima seems to mean the authority to pass sentence. The passage does not refer to a verdict in favor of the righteous. The saints sit upon thrones, which in fact indicates that they are the ones who will pronounce sentence. The passage is doubtless an allusion to Daniel 7, where the prophet notes that judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. The work of judgment referred to by the revelator is doubtless that spoken of by Paul. Do you not know that saints shall judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? The work of judgment will doubtless involve a careful investigation of the records of all so that every person will be convinced of the justice of God. Human beings, you, me, beings who have been in the presence of God, are given thrones and invested with authority. This by the God of whom that snake back in Eden said, you can't trust him. You cannot trust God. That same snake, unidentified then at that point, has slithered through history, slithered all the way over to Revelation 12, where finally that snake is identified. This is the devil, Satan, the mudslinger, the slanderer, who all through time has been lying about God. And so God, now in the judgment on the snake, says to creatures, divine creatures and human beings, you are given authority, you sit on thrones, you decide. Utterly unbelievable. It is as though God takes a step back and says, whatever question you have, whatever has broken your heart, whatever has shattered your soul, whatever has overwhelmed your life in this cosmic conflict, ask, search, find. You have authority. Unbelievable. But notice another word toward the end of that verse, that these people come to life and reign with Christ. 
Reign with him. Notice it does not say they reign over him. It does not say they reign under him. They reign with Christ. Stunning. You're in there with him. You're making decisions along with him. You're sorting through the realities along with Christ. So what are your questions? Where have you struggled? But that's not all. We go back, Revelation 20, a bit later in the the chapter, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And so we add another word. Not only words like thrones and authority and reign, but now we have books, books that are being opened. Sigvi Tonstad in his commentary has been extremely helpful to me in this. If you click on our face page on notes from today, you'll find three books, two from John Pauline, one from Sigvi Tonstad, that will help understand Armageddon. And if you want to wade into it, a commentary that will change your life but is not easy, easy going. So I want to read you something that Sigvi says about this passage we just wrote, read. He writes, The summons includes the great and the small, the people of significance and the little people in equal measure. There's equality before the law, and no one is too small in God's eyes. Books are opened. Yet another instance of open and openings that carry the storyline and show forth God's ideology. Books are the material ingredients of transparency, due process, and objectivity. The judgment happens by the book, suggesting that everyone may know where he or she stands. At the last judgment, people are accountable for their actions as inscribed inscribed in the scroll of deeds, but they are saved by grace by having their names in the scroll of life. No book in the Bible speaks more clearly about salvation as a gift, but the gift does not cancel out accountability. Understood as judgment in a conventional sense, books signify that God's judgment is not arbitrary but based on written evidence. We could add more to this. Did we have time? We would talk about transparency. All throughout Revelation, we keep seeing symbols and hearing metaphors for transparency and openness that speak of the way God governs his universe. In fact, Sigvi says, Revelation is a book of open doors. Time and again, you keep coming to open doors, open, 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 time and again. But it's not only open doors. You also see certain images that speak of transparency. A a, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. A city, the gates of which are never closed. There's always open access because God lives in the city. A city where there is no night, no darkness, only light shines. Nothing can be hidden. Creatures in the presence of God who are filled with eyes. Everywhere you look, there is eyes saying, everybody is watching. Every eye is on God. There is nothing hidden in his government. People, angelic beings, see it all. Transparency over and over again in the book to the point where what we could say about God's government and about God's judgment is that it is 
participatory, involving divine and angelic beings and involving human beings in a way that says your questions matter. They count. They will be heard. They will be answered. And you will be given authority to participate in that process. Unbelievable. But there's one more reality, one more piece that we cannot miss. And it's the scene of a final great conflict. It's a scene of Christ charging out of heaven, leading a host of his people into the last battle with the mud-slinging slanderer. In fact, the NIV gives this name to this section, the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. So we know that this is the grand clash, the grand battle. This is where Jesus will finally defeat everything that the slanderer, everything that the mudslinger has thrown at him and at us. Now it's coming. So our question is, will God be fair? How will God conduct himself in this final battle? So we read it, Revelation chapter 19, starting with verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, which we, by the way, know from Revelation 5 is his own blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, a quote from the Old Testament. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I remind you, of a couple of items we've addressed already that come into play here. One is the wrath of God. I would contend vigorously, not only from Revelation, but from other passages, that truly the wrath of God is when God chooses to step back and allow the full consequences to unfold and allow the mudslinger absolute ability to show his true colors. That's the wrath of God when God finally says, fine. Have it your way. And this is what that will look like. And that's exactly what's happening on the planet. The planet has gone crazy. Nothing is dependable anymore. And that's when Jesus comes charging out of heaven. I would remind you, secondly, of how many times we have seen in the weeks leading up to this that the battle that the mudslinger fights has to do with his mouth. Over and over again, the way he defeats people is with his mouth. Polemos, which is here translated war. It's a polemical battle, a war of ideologies, of ideas, of understandings, of beliefs. That's the war in which Jesus will finally conquer here, in which he is finally engaged. So as this rider on the white horse, the word of God 
charges out of heaven, followed by the armies of heaven. He comes with one weapon. Only one weapon. And that weapon is the sword coming out of his mouth. Time and again in Scripture, the sword is the Word of God, the truth of God. So when Jesus charges out of heaven for the final conflict, he comes with only one weapon to win this battle, and that weapon is the truth. The truth. In a war in which he has been engaged with the mud-slinging slanderer, The one weapon that will defeat him is not force, not power. Remember, he has all the might of the lion, but he works with the methods of the lamb. What will ultimately defeat him with people, with beings who are involved in this way, asking questions, watching everything that happens, what ultimately defeats the mud-slinging slanderer is the truth. The truth about God which from the beginning was in question, the truth about God's character, about God's ways in the world, the truth about why some people are lost, why some people are saved, the truth that speaks into your life and to your experience because of the existential questions that have crushed you along the way. When Jesus comes for that final battle, He just has one weapon, the truth. And that's enough. Because isn't that what we yearn for with our questions? God, I just want to understand you. I want to understand how you're working or or not working. I want to understand your ways in the world your ways in my life. I want to understand you along with the psalmist who have cried out, where are you, God? Why are you always silent? I want to understand you along with Job who suffered profoundly and said, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I want to understand you along with Jesus himself who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when Jesus comes to win the cosmic conflict, He comes with the truth, and that will be enough because that's the way our God governs. That's who our God is, the God with whom we will inhabit that holy city with our questions answered, the God who has brought us out of the apocalyptic disaster the God who tells us the truth. That, my friends, that is the tender God of the apocalypse. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.